We're very happy to have Rachel Karazim, my mother, Rolene Katz's, this is for the podcast, favorite speaker of all time. My mother heard Rachel Korazim at Temple Emmanuel, which I think you go to every year. It's going to be my sixth year coming. Sixth. Emmanuel in Boston is the premier conservative synagogue, I would say, in the Boston area. They have quite a few interesting members, including uh, the owner of the Patriots, Bob Kraft, Sheldon Adelson, um, and they have an incredible series of programs, and they have their favorite speakers, and one who comes every year, as I said, is Rachel Korazim. And uh, my mother urged me to bring Rachel Korazim to Orange County, which we did a few years ago. I'm very happy to do again. My mom says hi. Rachel Korazim is a powerful speaker and a freelance Jewish education consultant specializing in scuba diving and curriculum development for Israel, <laughs> as well as Holocaust education. Uh, she's involved with Jewish education worldwide, creating and implementing in-service training programs for educators, writing educational materials, counseling and teaching. It's one of the founders and directors of a special program for Israeli soldiers from disadvantaged backgrounds. She was responsible for creating the educational framework and training to teachers for the implementation of the program. Born in Israel, she served in the IDF as an officer in the central training base for women and was later a member of the IDF delegation to Nigeria, Niger, in West Africa. She's a graduate of Haifa University with a PhD in Jewish education. Uh, please join us in welcoming Rachel Korazim Back to Orange County, the other as well. Thank you. Shalom. Normally, normally, I will spend a few more minutes of introduction letting you ask me questions that are things that are curious to know about me and were not included in the presentation. But I've just learned that your sessions are never to go beyond 45 to 60 minutes. I'm already telling you I'm taking the 60 minutes. <laughs> not me, but the material that I have prepared. So anything you need to know about me, see me after class, as they say. Many, many years ago, while on Shlichot, being an emissary for the Jewish Agency in Montreal in the 80s, Long story, I'm not telling it today. There is a place here, madam, please join us up front. And I discovered, by fluke, the power of teaching about Israel through its literature. I love to tell the story. We do not have time for it today, how it happened. Ever since that time, I started slowly, and in recent years since I finally retired from my official job with the Jewish Agency, and I now can do the fun stuff, I continue developing a series of sessions, lectures, workshops, whichever way you want to call them, by picking a topic from the life of Israel and start collecting pieces of Israeli literature, mainly poetry, that address that issue. Being who I am, and there are a couple of people who know me already, most of all, there's the guy smack in front of me at the end, Mark Lazar, with whom we have been working together for so many years in Jerusalem and other places. Knowing who I am, I will of course try to find as many conflicting voices in order to complicate your life a little bit, and never untangling it for you but leaving you go away with the complexities. The goal of the session is to confuse you. That's my explicit goal. And cell phones would be nice to turn them off, okay? It happens. It happens, okay. 
Among my many topics in what Ari had just called the library and I call my catalog, there was one that was called The Image of the Other, in which I picked pieces of Israeli literature that dealt with portraying the image of Arabs, what they look like. And then one day, I said, hello, being the kind of person that you are, unfair. You should also have a session that picks out Arab, Israeli Arab, Israeli-Palestinian Arab citizens who happen to be writers and poets as well, and how they see themselves within the Jewish society and how they see us. And then one day I went, and the people who caused me the most trouble, of course, are my best friends. And these are this amazing educator whom I met in Jerusalem, worked with in LA. He has the chutzpah to move to Pittsburgh. I come to his school, which is not a Jewish school, and the man himself is not Jewish. And he asked me, Rachel, that will not work. I need for you to create a combined session in which we will be able to hear both voices, the Jewish-Israeli voice and the Arab-Israeli voice. I said, okay, for you, John, I will do it. Give it a name. And he gave it the name, the other as a mirror. This guy had moved from Pittsburgh just across the building here to Talbot Vitola, and he is now an educator in your school, and I'm looking forward to meet with him in the days that I spent here. John Cassie, he, he's a guy who deals with games and new projects and all that. Just moved to the school about a year ago, I'm gonna say, right? Okay, very good friend for many years. Okay, so this is actually, if you wish, already a product of educators looking differently at the, and at the same time in something of a collaborating way of looking at one issue, the other as a mirror. Why don't you share out as quickly as you can these works from across the table. Yala, just pick one and move it on. Pick one and move it on, I'll give an introduction. I made a lot of copies that we have Okay, and do it as fast as you can, ladies and gentlemen. You do get an introduction, so there is time for that. Don't worry. Normally, <coughs> one would tend to think that if Rachel Korozim just promised us that she will bring, she will bring, I will bring conflicting views, so I will have to go to the left-hand side of the Israeli political continuum and pick one voice with his lefty and whatever, and then I'll have to go to the other side, the right of center, and pick a couple of voices from there, and then I'll have to show you. Or, you could go to the very from, or you could go to the very secular, or you could do Ashkenazi and Mizrahi. Is that not what you'd expect me to do? Did I not promise you that I'm gonna confuse you? The divide between looking at the image of the other from the Jewish point of view, we'll come to the Arab point of view shortly, can sometimes not be an issue of left and right, or Ashkenazi and Sephardi, or religious or non-religious as we call them in Israel. Sometimes the divide can be within yourself that one day you will think one way and the other day, you yourself will think differently. 
This is what we want to entertain today, this option to start with, by looking at two major poets, one of blessed memory, Yehuda Michai, and the other, Tudalael Tibadel Chaim Arukim Agi Mishol, whom those of you who are going with Ari to Israel are gone, God willing, gonna meet when we next meet uh, after the Chagim in Israel, after the high holidays. Okay? Yehuda Michai, quick introduction because I don't take anything for granted was born in Germany <coughs> in the year 1924 to a family that one would probably call today modern Orthodox. But I think that if we had consulted Yudha Michai's father, he would say, Jewish you mean, right? <laughs> Believe it or not, the family in the year 1936 pack us up like brothers, sisters, cousins, the whole large family, and they make Aliyah, and they move to the land of Israel, not yet the state of Israel. Now, if among Jewish circles, and it doesn't matter if there are non-Jews in the room, of course they're part of this conversation, if we hear in a Jewish context about a Jewish family who uproots from Germany to move to the land of Israel in the year 1936, our inner clocks will say immediately in time. That's our reaction. Little Amichai, 12 years of age, starts within the very modern Orthodox Zionist, Orthodox whatever circles, first in Petr Tikva, then in Yerushalayim. <coughs> but like many child of an immigrant, <coughs> when you arrive in a new country, your biggest wish is to out Israeli, every Israeli and to out-native every native, and to out-sabra every sabra. <laughs> Amichai never became a sabra because he was 12 when he came, but he tried very hard. So off with the keeper, off with the German name, Yehuda Amichai. Like how much more Zionist and Israeli can, <laughs> like honestly, Amichai, my people is alive, okay? Obviously that was not the Yeke name in Germany. He will become the major poetic voice of Israel all the way from the late 40s, by which time he is already old enough to fight in Israel independence war and some of the wars to continue. By the 80s, when this is published, the poem we are reading, he is already a major poetic voice in Israel. This comes from a book called Poems of Jerusalem that they published in Israel in the late 80s I'm making a point of telling you why, because in Israel you need to know when a certain thing was written, okay? Because it will give you the background. So 80s is after, it's post 67. Physically and tachless, it, if, if they are teachers of literature, they are now mad at me that I go into those details, because you're not supposed to, you're supposed to do just the text. But I need to tell you that Amichai had physically moved because of the liberation, reunification, occupation, wherever your politics are. But Jerusalem is united in 1967, and therefore parts of the city that had been borderline are now smack in the middle of the city. Part of them is Mishkenosh Anim that used to be the first neighborhood out of old Jerusalem in the 19th century. Where are they going there right now? And the city creates a beautiful, renovated, gentrified, can I use that word? Yes. Will you allow me, Mark? Gentrified, 
neighborhood smack in the middle of Yerushalayim, facing the walls of the old city, not the wall, just the walls surrounding the city. This is Amich where Amichai lives at the time. So we are post-67. Jerusalem is together. Amichai as a dignitary, as an artist, is offered an apartment to live there. Check very quickly. Can I see a show of hands? How many of you have been to Jerusalem? Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I'm impressed. How many of you have been by the Montefiore windmill? Okay. Can you visualize yourself standing there? Okay, now do the exercise with me. The windmill is in your back, okay, with the carriage and everything. And you're facing the old city. It's a sort of a terrace, right? Step down, three steps. Make a left. Mark, help me. Walk for one minute or two. A minute and a half. <laughs> and you are at Amichai's home. And he knew exactly what I was asking. And you are at Amichai's home. And this poem, An Arab Shepherd is Searching for a Goat on Mount Zion, is an at-home poem. Because Amichai is looking out of the, now we don't have porches, the window of his home, facing the old city. He is at Mishkenot Shananim. There is a valley in between. <coughs> we call it the Sultan Pools. There are no Sultan and no Pools there, but once they have been, okay? He is facing, and this is like the 80s. In the 80s, ladies and gentlemen, in Jerusalem, as elsewhere in the world, we still allowed kids to just go out and play on the street. You remember that time? Oh, yes. We didn't have to make play dates on the phone. The kid just went out. Come sunset, you go on the porch or the window and you start calling, you call them, we yell. But you call them nicely, okay? But we yell, okay? So this is that moment. Sunset, you don't know where your kid is. Jerusalem, valley, Mount Zion across the valley, walls of the old city. Can you see yourself there? Sun is setting, it's gonna be dark soon. Say there? An Arab shepherd is searching for his goat on Mount Zion and on the opposite mountain, I'm searching for my little boy. Now be honest, I don't care how liberal you may be. It's the 80s, it's Jerusalem, it's sunset, your son is missing, you look at the window, on the opposite hill, Mount Zion, you see an Arab. Your son is missing and your first thought is, oh, he too must be looking for something, right? Wrong, okay? So your automatic reaction is, hi, hey, where's my kid? So Amichai, by starting a poem like that, is already challenging Israeli society. Friends, he's saying, even at a hard moment, you don't know where your kid is. If you're facing an Arab, it doesn't automatically mean that he has anything to do 
with the fact that your son is missing. Could be, but do not immediately assume. He could be a shepherd looking for a kid. He could be. Can you take that deep breath for a moment and somehow hold this thought? An Arab shepherd is searching for a goat on Mount Sinai, Mount Zion. You know Israel, you have been there. Some of you may have lived there. How well are these lines received in the 80s in Israel? Were there immediately, if they had Facebook in the 80s, will Amicha immediately have hate comments? Probably today, but not at the time. Not at the time. I'm not saying that everybody is embracing it, but it's a very legitimate voice still in the 80s. <coughs> An Arab shepherd and a Jewish father, both in their temporary failure. Can you see that the further step? Friends, shepherds need to know where their goats are. Fathers need to know where their children are. If he doesn't and I don't, we are both at a moment of vulnerability. We are both short of being who we need to be. We are not at our best. Could I read some ideology into this? That Amichai may be suggesting that a point of meeting is not your rah-rah, I am the strongest, I will tell you kind of thing, I will slaughter you kind of thing. How about if we all descended from the pedestals and agreed that we all have shortcomings and less than perfect moments? Would that possibly be a place to, of encounter? Let go, let go of the strength. Be just a father who is not functioning properly right now. Recognize him for a shepherd that is not properly functioning right now. Not a threat, just a moment of misery. Our voices meet above the sultan pool in the valley between us. I'd like you to visualize that, so I'll do a little bit of show for you. <coughs> I do not know the names of the children of Amichai. So I'm going to lend Amichai the name of my oldest son, which is Ori and works very well with my presentation. And I have water, don't worry, I have water. I'm okay. I know this concern in the audience when that happens. I have water. So I'm gonna lend Amichai the name of my firstborn, Ori, who is now 47. I don't know where he is. <laughs> so Amichai could be standing there and going like, Ori, Ori. And I don't know how shepherds call for missing goats, but it could be also like brrrr or something. And the voices meet in the valley in the sultan pools. That's so funny, because by now, the sultan pools are an open air concert place. So this is where voices do meet. And Amicha is like winking at you, say, do you know Jerusalem well enough to understand this point? Otherwise, have some Israeli explain it to you. So the voices meet. Neither of us wants the child or the goat to get caught in the wheels of the terrible Chadgadia machine. No. Is there anybody who a week after Seder 
in this room needs for me to understand, to explain what is a Chabir Gadia machine. If you do, don't be shy. I will. Is there anybody in the room who doesn't know what a Chadgadia machine is? Because if you do not, that means you haven't stayed until the end of the Seder. <laughs> and I will know that about you. <laughs> because it's the very last piece we read of the Haggadah. After we did the Hallel and after we did the Amazon and all that. It's the very end. Okay? Now, what's the Chadgadia story all about? We, we, we assume it's from somewhere in the Middle Ages. Okay? It's a constantly like daddy bought this little goat and then the cat bit it and then the dog ate the cat and then the uh, stick hit the dog. You know the story, okay? Now listen to Amichai. All the way to God, who will kill the, the angel of death. Amichai knows about himself that he doesn't want neither the child nor the goat to be caught in this endless killing. But Amichai is also lending this level of credibility to the Arab shepherd. I don't know if you guys have a Chadgadia story, but you must have something similar, do you not? He's suggesting in his poetry. And I trust you that your culture also includes something like that, that you do not know, want Neither my child nor your goat. And I, I know the difference between a child and a goat. Okay, I do. And yet Amichai wants to create an almost equality, a total credibility to the intentions of the other side. I know you're similar to me. We are having similar wishes. Afterwards, we found them among the bushes. Oi. Like, you know, this is why they got lost. Because the child was playing with the goat among the bushes. This is what happened. Nothing worse than that. Almost a biblical image of the end of days as the child will lead all those beasts, you know. And now the classical thing that we all recognize. And our voices came back with in, inside us laughing and crying. I'm going to remind you of that day in the mall. Or the amusement park, yeah. or the picnic grounds, where you lost your child. And the suffocating anguish. <coughs> and then you finally find them, and you hug strangle them, <laughs> because this is what we do. And then we come out, and your voice comes back, because you have lost it. You could not breathe for anxiety. And then we say that classical sentence to our child. Don't you ever <laughs> dare do that again to me. <laughs> you said it. It was not about the child being scared. It was about you totally losing it. And Amichai recognizes that there is an innocence of the child that the goat that, does not, that is not afraid of all the anxious things that the adults may be afraid of. They were just innocently playing there. We were the ones panicking. <coughs> now, Amichai could have, of course, ended his poem here. He could always end his poem two lines before the end, but he never does. Because the poem really ends here. 
we found our voices laughing and crying, happy ending, hallelujah. But then you have this classical, I have to move from the mic for a minute to illustrate this, but I'll come back, okay? So don't be afraid, you'll hear me. Amchai needs to step aside and look at his own story, his own creation, and make a universal comment. It's classical in Amchai poetry. Look for it every single time you read an Amchai poem. Not 100%, but many. Searching for a goat or a son has always been the beginning of a new religion in these mountains. Wow. Like Akedah, Shaul HaMelech, Jesus, you name it. Everybody in included. And the common denominator is the place, these hills. You want to go with the Hebrew, the meaning of this particular Hamakom. It's in these places that Hamakom is revealed in these hills. What a poem. Amichai, the image of the other, could be like an ancient, anxious, fearful person who is ill-functioning right now, and maybe that's our meeting point. Turn the page. Because we are in the same book in 1985. Poems of Jerusalem by Amichai. If you like this, and the book was amazing when it was published and it appeared in three languages, Hebrew, English, and photography. <laughs> it did, it did. And then that is out of print. And they will sell you poems of Jerusalem in Amazon, but they don't have the pictures. They don't have the photography anymore. Look for it at, in, in, in bookstores in Jerusalem, you may still find a couple. Not your Damascus and whatever. The order individual bookstores, they may still have a copy, okay? Or come visit me at home, I'll show you mine. <laughs> the diameter of the bomb. Now I need to be with you a little bit sensitive here. I want you to pay attention to language, and this is already a translation. But in the first one line, Actually, a couple of lines. Amicha is using a very short, technical, dry kind of language. And I'd like you to open your mind for associations and tell me where do you hear a language like this? Because it's not poetic language. It comes from a different realm of writing. So let's see how it works. I know what I get in Israel when I do it with Israelis. Let's see, and, and, but I do it oftentimes with non-Israelis. The diameter of the bomb was 30 centimeters. That's about a foot. And the diameter of its effective range was about seven meters. That's about 22 feet. Where do you hear language like this? Tuck, 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 the diameter of the bomb, the effective range. Military. Blah, blah, blah. military. This is classical military language. And if you served in the military, especially the one I relate to, the IDF. Your commanders, not necessarily the officers, your even non-commissioned officers, will have the little brochure with all they have to instruct you about the particular arm or bomb or whatever, and they'll just rattle it through so the diameter and the weight and the right, la 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 la, and then you have to remember it. So Amichai is calling upon the Israeli and non-Israeli reader 
to recall that dry language of how you describe a weapon. No emotions whatsoever. And then he's stepping out of it with four dead and 11 wounded. And around these, in a larger circle of pain and time, two hospitals are scattered and one graveyard. So look at me for a minute. Bomb, effective range, 22 feet, like the size of this room. That was dry. And now let me tell you the meaning of effective range. Four dead, two hospitals, graveyard. And like sort of the concentric circles, like you dropped a stone in water. Bomb, effective range, the whole city, hospital. And you can hear the people being interviewed on the radio. I was just about to cross the street, you know, it was nothing between me being part of it or not. It's so little between being part of the effective range or not. But the concentric circles have not stopped yet. But the young woman <coughs> who was buried in the city she came from at a distance of more than 100 kilometers, that's about 60 miles, enlarges the circle considerably. Where did she come from? It's not Tel Aviv. A hundred kilometers is further than Tel Aviv. Beersheba, Netanya, Afula. Can you hear her neighbor being interviewed on the radio the next day? I told her not to go to Jerusalem these days. I tried to explain to her it wasn't a great idea, but she so insisted Maybe somebody was coming to visit from America and she wanted to meet with them because look at the next line. And the solitary man mourning her death at the distant shores of a country far across the sea includes the entire world in this circle. Father, in a Jewish community in California, and she nudged about how she wanted to make Aliyah or do a one-year course in Jerusalem or some other program. They actually give her, gave her an offer of insurance, did they not? And then concerned people came to him afterwards and said, are you sure? Why are you letting her do that? Did you ever hear those voices when you were planning to send on a kid on an Israel program? It's all there. It's this whole Jewish world that is included in the concentric circles that started with the bomb. Again, Amichai could have finished the poem because the whole world is already included. There is nowhere to go. Oh, yes, there is, says Amichai. Only I don't want to talk about it. But I need for you to know. And I won't even mention the crying of orphans that reaches up to the throne of God and beyond making a circle with no end and no God. Oi. Consider this for a moment. Will you read this poem as a bomb that had now finally exploded? It hit not just the effective range, not just four dead, two hospitals, a cemetery, a city far away, a father across the ocean. 
it hit my faith. It hit my ability to believe this, this world comes under the auspices of a God. How could it be that a thing handheld, one foot wide, could have in it the potential to create this kind of devastation? But I included this poem in my series about the image of the other. Where is the Arab in this poem? is the bomb. No name, no face, no human trait, no universal concerns, nothing. The same Amichai, the same book. You do not need to be left and right religious or non-religious. Everyday life of encounters in Israel will give you the shepherd, and the bomb. Different days, different events, different experiences. Take a deep breath because we are turning the page. <laughs> we are not doing the lover right now. And we are going to page six for transistor muazin. Now I'm looking around me and luckily I see People, how do I say it in polite Americanese? <laughs> of a certain age. Is that okay? Yes. Mature. Now imagine me talking for your group of teens. And I will start by asking, hello, what's a muazin? Do you guys know what a muazin is? Is the gentleman that calls the, the Muslims to prayer. In the old days, he would climb the Mirnaret all the way to the palace and go, Allah Akbar. Then they installed the loudspeaker and he was speaking from below. Then they put a recording and now probably they have an application and it goes automatically. And he's out of work. So we have established what a muazin is. Now the tough question for the teens. What is a transistor? <laughs> What is a transistor? They don't know. And I have to take like a good five minutes to explain that we used to have the, you know, radios that you could carry, wow, and they were working on batteries and even smaller ones, okay? You had one. We all did. But they don't, the kids. They have their little contraptions or whatever in their cell phone or what have you, and that's it. <coughs> now, Agimishol, Hungarian descent, all my Hungarian friends now killed me because she was born in Transylvania, that we people coming from Budapest descent, we'd not consider for Hungary, but they do. So Hungarian descent. And the family makes Aliyah in the very early 50s from that part of the world that is called Transylvania. By the way, it's very near the place where Elibizel was born. And <coughs> she's three when they come. So she's raised bilingual, Hungarian at home, Hebrew in kindergarten and school, just like myself, although born in that country, but also raised bilingual. 
and she becomes a pretty well-known poet in Israel nowadays, very strong female voice, also a teacher of Israeli literature in major institutes like the Tel Aviv University, Alma, which is a place for Jewish studies in Tel Aviv and many other places. Quite a lot, not as much as Amichai, but quite a lot of her poetry is available in English, and some of it freely on the internet. So look her up, because there is stuff on the internet that you can find in all those poetry internet sites. Okay? This is more or less, well, I would say probably could go half a decade later, because beyond being a poet and a speaker and teacher of poetry, she also, the family, lives by the Gedera, which was one of the places towns created uh, during the first Aliyah end of the 19th century, but continues to be a vibrant place. And around it, smaller communities. Can you see how careful I am not to use the Chasvachalila word settlement? Because nowadays you cannot use it without immediately explaining which side of what line. So I'm saying communities and villages and towns, God forbid I should use the word they settled. Because there was a time that the word settlement was kosher. But it's not anymore for some. And she grows fruit, peaches and pears. And in the 80s and the 90s, Gedera and the Moshev where Agi lives, from Mordechai, is not very far from the Gaza border. And workers can freely come and go in her orchard. It's also a sunset time poem. It's the end of the working day. She being the owner, the proprietor, but she worked the whole day with her worker, is probably at the whatever main place of the orchard, when probably they have the warehouse, maybe a small office, whatever. And her worker is coming up from the end of the orchard, and it's that time of the day when the Muazin is calling the Muslims to prayer one of the five times in a day. And now we can read the poem. The transistor Muazin rises from my orchard. So I'm at the gate and I can already hear the voice of my worker carrying his transistor and, and the Muazin is on and I can just hear him approaching. Okay. Hussein, barefoot and bound to my land. Oi. We could have half a semester just on that line. <laughs> if you know your earlier Zionist poetry, like the Rachel poetry from the first decades of the 20th century, how like I haven't sung enough you might all I did was press with my bare feet an alley from the kibbutz to the kinneret. Walking in the land barefoot is such a classical Jewish kibbutz pioneering kind of image. But you know, it's a classical pioneering Jewish one because when they came, they saw the others barefoot and they discovered how comfortable that was. And now it's Hussein walking on my land with his barefoot. Now, but his connection to it is way more physical, way more textual. 
than mine. But it's my land. Hello. Don't forget it's the... Okay. He needs the evening dough from Jewish flour to find me a haji. Can you see what happens? They have finished working. He came up from the end of the orchard and he is kneading a dough and complaining. He lives long enough among Jews. <laughs> and he doesn't like the flour that she got at the supermarket. Because probably back in Gaza, where he lives, they use another texture kind of flour, which creates probably better whole wheat pita or whatever. So he's doing the dough for her, and he's going to do what Arabs are supposed to do for us, right? Make pitot. Oi, I'm terrible. I know. But, but Agimish Ol is also terrible, making fun of that. Like you go, you want to give your kids the sort of an Arab experience, you take them to a fake Bedouin tent, and you make them do pitot, and then check, we met Arabs. <laughs> anyway. So Agimish Ol again, like Amichai earlier, she's winking. He's making pitot, pitot for me. And complaining, like a good Middle Eastern. That flower, like seriously? And he cannot even pronounce my name properly. Her name is Agi, with the Hungarian accent. There is no word like that in Arabic. Haji, that he understands, okay? So he now baptized her into a Muslim name, Haji, when the mother's intention back in Transylvania for sure wasn't that. Aggie, close my sorting eyes after a day's harvest. Crouch with him over the fire he kindles. My next comments are only for women. Men are invited to listen. Ladies, it's an end of a working day. You're a bit tired, maybe more than a bit. You're there, just the two of you. You, the Jewish woman. He, the Arab worker, he is making bread for you with his own hands, and you close your eyes. What will it take for a woman in the presence of another person, male, to close your eyes when you're tired already? What does it tell you about the relationship? confidence. She's comfortable to close her eyes. She does not need to watch his hands. They are okay together. Man, woman, tired, bread. How much more basic than that can you be? Agimish all can. Just you wait. <laughs> we plan tomorrow's features. So probably it was Piers today, Piers today, okay? Over Europa and the hand-rolled cigarette. What's an Europa? An Israeli cigarette, quite mild. Who is smoking the Europa? You don't need, it's, it's, you really, you don't need to be like a scholar of culture to understand. She is speak, he's smoking the Europa and he is hand-rolling the simple, cheaper, Gaza cigarettes. Yeah, Haji, <coughs> his Arab side slithers forth, 
supported by the consonants of my castrated Hungarian name. He actually really abused my name. In these photosynthesis twilight, the end of the day, his hands run over the tin, casting a spell with the pita. Hussein castles me legends, Gaza's thousand and one nights, his body a supple viper, his eyes an answer to the fire, still only women. The man is doing pita magic with his hands, and you are not looking at his eyes right now. You're only looking at his hands, doing this, doing this magic with the pita. Could it possibly, remotely possibly, happen that in your mind a thought goes through what kind of other magic could he do with his hands? <laughs> is that a possibility at all, ladies? Yes. Yes. It is. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, there is oftentimes a very strong erotic connection. They are great looking guys. <laughs> the eyes of the women are black and enticing. We are not just political entities. We are men and women looking at each other as men and women do. And Agi Mishol is courageous enough to include that in her poetry. And if you will read Shahida, which we do not have time to do together, she, like Amichai, will do the flip side. And we'll talk about a woman terrorist, suicidal terrorist, who blows herself up in a bakery in Yerushalayim, Erev Shabbat. And she totally doesn't get it. The same Agi Mishol, who is totally attracted by Hussein and totally doesn't get woman. How could you possibly do that? Pretend you are pregnant and hide a bomb. Like she's having a very basic body conversation with the Arab. Attracted by the man, totally not getting that other woman. But now we need to cross the border. Because I promise you the mirror. And mirror you will get. Please go to page 11 for me. <coughs> How many times when political topics come out, I'm gonna be very careful, Ari, okay? Don't be afraid, but I will bring up a political thing. When that two-state solution is brought up to the conversation, and somebody who is not all in favor there are a few like that among us, who will say, well, in 1947, there was already a two-solution, a two-state solution on the table, the partition plan, do you know what I'm talking about? And we agreed and they didn't. So, that's it. Have you ever heard that argument? Yeah. Oh, I wonder how, anyway. When you go to read a piece by Emil Khabibi, unfortunately long dead, born and raised in Haifa, which is my favorite place in Israel, although I don't live there anymore. But this is where I was raised. And Haifa is a mixed 
community. Emil Khabibi in 1948 belongs to a political party, a communist one. Yeah, maybe you don't like communist, but he was, who was all in favor of the partition. They have been Palestinian Arabs of British Mandate Palestine that actually supported the partition. They were not the majority, but they existed. And therefore, when you hear the voice of Emil Khabibi, I want you to remember that. He goes on to be a member of, of the Communist Party, and he will be elected to the Knesset. Emil Khabibi was an MK, a member of the Knesset for more than one round. He's also a laureate of the Israel Prize, the Israel Award, that you hand out on Yom Ha'atzma'ut in the afternoon of the day of Yom Ha'atzma'ut. I want you to have that in your mind because some of his words will be disturbing. Some you will find not to your taste. Some you will want to yell, yes, but. So I want you to hold your horses. And all the thoughts about they should be grateful we gave them democracy, they don't have it named out the country. And we gave them baby clinics in the villages and we, will you leave that out a little bit of the conversation? Because we didn't give them anything. They are citizens of the state of Israel. And they're supposed to get what I get. And nobody calls at me every other day. Are you grateful that your kids can go to a school? It's normal, right? All right, now we are going to go through a slow reading of Emil Khabibi's introduction to a piece that he called Haifa Vadi Al Nisnas and Abbas Street. Haifa, if you know it, has three layers. Lower town, which is port city with everything that goes with port city, the bars, the prostitutes, the this, the that, whatever, garages. Then there is the middle city, which is sort of commercial, semi-residential. The Technion used to be in that part, and they move uphill. And then there is the upper part, which is sort of fancier and residential and looks like suburbia, and this is where I grew up. I mean, what can I tell you? This is where I grew up. Abbas Street, which is in the middle part, is the fancy Arab part, okay? So within that middle part, there is a fancier neighborhood when better to do, more well-to-do Arab citizens could afford to live. Vadim is not, now if we have the layers, we need to think geography. Vadim is not, goes all the way from the top across the layers to all the way to the bottom. And when it crosses the middle and the lower, it's an Arab neighborhood. So Vadil Nisnas is really the heart of the Arab neighborhood of Haifa. And if you take a tour there nowadays, there were three good friends, Emil Khabibi, Sami Michael, oh, the name of the third, the lawyer from Nazareth, it will come to me in a minute, who wrote and acted together for peace, and they are pieces of their literature on the walls throughout Vadinisnas. The only one that is still alive among them is Sami Mikhail, the Jewish guy, okay? So just a suggestion for your next trips to go to Haifa. 
Here's the introduction to this chapter. And remember as you listen with me, that I will ask you at a certain point, do you believe him? Then I will ask you, does it matter? So just listen up. I claim to be one of those people who cannot see the moon except for its luminous side. So I'm a positive guy. I never see the dark side of things. It is thus I justify those Jewish friends with sensitive souls who claim they do not believe it when we declare that we want a lasting peace based on a Palestinian state alongside an Israeli one. So can you see the complexity of this sentence? It's because I'm an optimist, I sort of understand why you guys do not believe us. Like the convulsion of the whole trend of thoughts. Had I been a pessimist, I wouldn't understand you. But because I'm an optimist, I do understand why you do not trust us. Convolute a little bit, okay. I find excuses for their mistrust, telling myself and my people that perhaps their suspicion of our intention comes from their sense of guilt at everything they have committed against us, expressed once in Moshe Dayan's phrase, if we were in their place. You know, guys, why you do not trust us? I'm talking as an Arab now, as Emil Khabibi. You do not trust us because you feel so guilty for what you have done to us. Do you believe him? No. Does it matter if you do or not? Does it matter? Is it a tenant of the conversation and our ability to listen to the other's narrative that we should believe and accept every single word? No. We can just listen, can we not? Let's do that. Jump to the next paragraph, where we start with umvadi. In Arabic, ladies and gentlemen, when a person has a child, a firstborn, they will change his name or her name. Does anybody here have a firstborn son? What's his name, ma'am? Evan? Doron. Doron. As soon as he was born and named, you will not be addressed as, your name? Jordan. Jordan. You will be addressed as Um Doron, the mother of Doron. Okay? Do you know about this guy called Mahmoud Abbas? Yeah. Yeah. Do we in Israel call him Mahmoud Abbas? No. No, because we are in the Middle East. What's his proper name in the Middle East? Abu Mazen. He is the father of Mazen. That's you, how you properly address people in the Middle East, if they are Muslims. I would be Um Ori. And you would be? Abu? Abu Arye. Abu Arye, nice to meet you. Okay. Now Emil Khabibi is talking about his mother. <coughs> and he calls her Um Vadi. Vadi is a valley in Arabic. <coughs> Vadi al-Nisnas, that Arabic neighborhood. And so just by naming her, thus and not calling her Um Emil, 
He's telling us readers, my mom, she was the mother of the whole neighborhood. She was Umvadi. This is how they called her. This is how revered, respected my mother used to be. Umvadi was unable to overcome the shock of those days, 1948. By then, her life was behind her, and most of her sons and grandchildren were scattered in the diaspora. Oy vey. Is it at all kosher for Arabs to use the term diaspora? Or shall we imi- What are you talking about? <laughs> diaspora is mine. Well, Chavirim, you know, when your people had been dispersed between Jordan and Egypt and Syria and Lebanon and America and California and what have you, you do have a diaspora. And we haven't invented that Greek word. And it's not registered to our name anywhere. It's a word. Palestinians are allowed to use it. Swallow. It's going to get harder. Once she came down to the premises of our old political club in Wadi al-Nisnas to participate in a joint Arab-Jewish women's meeting. That would mean the Communist Party. Because in all the history of Israel, the only properly joint, totally Arab-Jewish party was and still is the Communist Party. Okay? And we have them, and we always did, even if you didn't know. They are kosher, allowed, and they are represented in the Knesset. The head of the party right now is a Jew, Dov Hanin. But there could be years that it would be reversed. <coughs> so mom was coming to this meeting. Those were the days of raging general election campaign. The Jewish speaker was emphasizing our struggle for the right of the Palestinian refugees to return to their home. The Jewish speaker was emphasizing the right of the refugees to come back home. Oi! <laughs> Umvadi interrupted her saying, will my sons and daughters return? Like, don't give me all this blah, blah. Tachlis, when are my sons coming back? Oh, five more minutes, we're done, okay? Taken aback by the Jewish Hungarian speaker, replied, they will return when peace is achieved, Yofi. Lies, shouted Umvadi. My son Emil never lies to me. He told me that their return, if ever they return, will take a long time. By then, I won't be here to see them. I will be in my grave. Ever since that meeting, and without me knowing, it became her custom to go secretly to a corner of Abbas Gardens. They didn't live in Abbas Street. They lived in the Vadi. But she went alone to a corner in Abbas Garden on the street. She would lean against a stone shaded by an olive tree and bemoan her destiny lonely and separated from her children, especially her youngest son, Naim. <coughs> Another half a semester. Naim is a name for a man, both in Hebrew and in Arabic. What does it mean in both languages? Pleasant. Pleasant. 
Nice. Okay. So she had a Naim and I have a Noam for my grandson. Totally get it. Naim, where are you now? What happened to you without me? Little did I know of a newly acquired habit until one day I overheard my two daughters playing at being Grandma Umvadi bemoaning on Naim. <coughs> so he hasn't got a clue that his mother occasionally takes off to the corner of the garden. But the little kids, his daughters do. And they think it's a riot. And then they pretend to be Grandma Umvadi. And they go by a tree and go, oh, Naim, oh, Naim, and probably cracking up laughing. And this is how you will find out how your mom feels. That year, Umvadi left us, crossing the Mandelbaum Gate, when Jerusalem was still divided until 67. This could be the early 50s, probably. There is one spot <coughs> when dignitaries or others can cross from both sides. And she had decided to leave Israel and to join her family in Syria. Why would the state of Israel let Arab citizens go so freely via the Mandelbaum Gate to be with their children in Damascus? Hmm? Yeah, because it was a one-way trip. It wasn't a return ticket. You want to go there? Four on the right. Go. Okay? So Amir now, look at the geography. They travel from Haifa <coughs> all the way south to Jerusalem. Then she will cross the Mandelbaum Gate, probably to go to Amman in Jordan. And then she will take the bus for hours to travel all the way back to Damascus. While if we lived in a normal place, a car trip from Haifa to Damascus, Three hours? Maybe, if you drive as I do, slowly. Okay. That year, Umvadi left us crossing the Mandelbaum Gate on her way to her children who had taken refuge in Damascus. It was there in Damascus and not in Shafira Ammar, which is Faram in Hebrew, her native village, now part of Israel, that her soul returned to its maker. This is so touching to me because I have a daughter and a granddaughter who live in Hanatod, which is about like 10 minutes drive from Shfaram. Okay, so i physically connected to these places. I was raised in Haifa. I have family living there. Okay. As for you, you can stay. Your life is before you and you can afford to wait until they return. Those were the last words of my mother, Umvadi, when we parted on the Israeli side of the Mandelbaum Gate. I remained. I returned to Haifa and wrote my very first story as a citizen of the State of Israel. It was entitled Mandelbaum Gate. And I remained. But until this day, and as for long, as long as I live, I think of my mother as having remained with me, for brothers are of the roots. By the way, when Emil Khabibi passed in the 90s of cancer, he had requested for a very short thing to be written 
on his tombstone. And the short thing is, I stayed in Haifa. The reading of which is, if you want a window into that culture, that regime and politics are way less important than the land. You stay in Haifa, it can be Crusaders and Brits and Israelis, it doesn't matter. Haifa counts. The contact with the field in Agi Bishol's poem counts. These hills in Amichai's poem count. We are creating a language that relies heavily on very similar cultural notions. I think it's a good point for us to close for today. Thank you very much. running anywhere. Okay, those of you who want to stay, we'll do a little bit of Q&A, but remember that um, Rafael will be back uh, at CBI on Shabbat. Topic um, will be... Uh, Politics set for ethics. Then we'll push the envelope a little bit further. Right, so I hope you'll join us. Uh, so okay. Thank you so much. Otherwise, we'll do about five or so, ten minutes Q&A. If people have questions, otherwise... We can questions? Yes, sir. Normally, when I have the full hour and a half, I will make a point in each poem to show you issues of what is lost in translation. The, the, the translation of Avichai is, of course, top-notch, top is Hannah Bloch and Hannah Corfield from Berkeley. Agi Mishol also has good translators. And the Abbas piece I found on the internet on an Egyptian site with an English translation. So the name of the translator was written in Arabic, and then, unfortunately, I'm not fluent in Arabic reading, so I cannot tell you. But they are good translators, although oftentimes you will find that if you look carefully, stuff is lost in translation. Yes. I may be able to show you some of that on Shabbat, if you come, okay? Yes, ma'am. Uh, the Amikai poem on the diameter of the bomb. Yeah. Has anyone suggested that that be read on the flip side, where Israel is bombing? Let's say no, no. The time this comes from the 80s, Israel is bombing nothing. Mm -hmm. Okay. The Israel bombing image is from recent years. Mm -hmm. I never heard such a reading of the Amikai thing. And then the classical, you know, the Jerusalem Straits and the. Not everything can be read into everything. So I don't think that this can happen. No, I'm not suggesting it's appropriate, yeah. but I'm wondering whether anyone's no. trying to I haven't seen it. I haven't come across. Yeah. Any more? The other one, Agi Michel. So she generally, I looked at her book of poetry for our trip to Israel. The stuff I looked at was in English. So I haven't seen the bulk of her read. But does she write, um, is it mostly about Israel? I mean, the topic seems ah. completely irrelevant to Israel. There are lots of personal poetry, yeah. men and women poetry, but there is lots of Israel stuff. There is lots also of an immigrating to Israel stuff and, and, and becoming part of his culture and objecting to some of his culture, etc. Some of it is very complex. And then she's still very productive. So you have to keep watching at what is coming. Uh, there, there is politics there as well, as you can see in Shahida. Uh, and whatever, but very, very complex, very varied, I would say. 
Yeah. Are you familiar with the uh, Israeli uh, series Arab Labor? You bet. Well, well, that is not poetry. It is literature on both sides. Mirror, you can see. And I understand this. First, the Israelis were opposed to it, and then they began to First of all, the person who wrote Arab Labor is a citizen of the state of Israel. What you mean is that Jews may have been opposed to it. The Jews, no, I bet the Jews. Your language when you talk about the Middle East, we will catch you on each word. What do you mean Israelis? Said Kashua is an Israeli. Jews, uh-huh. It's a state. Kurdish. Okay. So some of us loved it from day one, because there was no such thing. The Israelis, like Israeli who? Left, right, center, religious, less religious, in the middle. The opinions were there. It was an extremely successful series extremely successful series. Said Kishore, unfortunately, in recent years, have opted to live outside of Israel, and he now lives in America for about three or four years already, speaking in this country. I, for one, miss him a lot. I can tell you that we had a not less successful Israeli series about the ultra-Orthodox, yeah. for which he had written the screen, like the Arab Israeli. Go figure. In Israel, everything and its opposite are possible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Shall we close here? Yeah. Yes. Um, thank you very much.